Chapter 35, Segment 4. He wrote his letter to Hayward all the same. There were eight pages of it. The fortnight that remained passed quickly, and though each evening when they went into the garden after supper, Miss Wilkinson remarked that one day more had gone, Philip was in too cheerful spirits to let the thought depress him. One night Miss Wilkinson suggested that it would be delightful if she could exchange her situation in Berlin for one in London. Then they could see one another constantly. Philip said it would be very jolly, but the prospect aroused no enthusiasm in him. He was looking forward to a wonderful life in London, and he preferred not to be hampered. He spoke a little too freely of all he meant to do, and allowed Miss Wilkinson to see that already he was longing to be off. "'You wouldn't talk like that if you loved me,' she cried. He was taken aback and remained silent. "'What a fool I've been,' she muttered. To his surprise, he saw that she was crying. He had a tender heart and hated to see anyone miserable. "'Oh, I'm awfully sorry. What have I done? Don't cry.' "'Oh, Philip, don't leave me. "'You don't know what you mean to me. "'I have such a wretched life, and you've made me so happy.' "'He kissed her gently. "'There really was anguish in her voice, and he was frightened. "'It had never occurred to him that she meant what she said quite, quite seriously. "'I'm awfully sorry. "'You know, I'm frightfully fond of you. "'I wish you would come to London. "'You know I can't.' Places are almost impossible to get, and I hate English life. Almost unconscious that he was acting a part, moved by her distress, he pressed her more and more. Her tears vaguely flattered him, and he kissed her with real passion. But a day or two later she made a real scene. There was a tennis party at the vicarage, and two girls came, daughters of a retired major in an Indian regiment who had lately settled in Blackstable. They were very pretty. One was Philip's age, and the other was a year or two younger. Being used to the society of young men, they were full of stories of hill stations in India, and at a time the stories of Rudyard Kipling were in every hand. They began to chaff Philip gaily, and he, pleased with the novelty, the young ladies at Blackstable treated the vicar's nephew with a certain seriousness, was gay and jolly. Some devil within him prompted him to start a violent flirtation with them both, and as he was the only young man there, they were quite willing to meet him halfway. It happened that they played tennis quite well, and Philip was tired of pat-ball with Miss Wilkinson. She had only begun to play when she came to Blackstable. So when he arranged the sets after tea, he suggested that Miss Wilkinson should play against the curate's wife, with the curate as her partner and he would play later with the newcomers. He sat down by the elder Miss O'Connor and said to her in an undertone, We'll get the duffers out of the way first, and then we'll have a jolly set afterwards. End of segment four. Chapter 35, segment five. Apparently, Miss Wilkinson overheard him, for she threw down her racket and, saying she had a headache, went away. It was plain to everyone that she was offended. Philip was annoyed that she should make the fact public. The set was arranged without her, but presently Mrs. Carey called him. Philip, 
You've hurt Emily's feelings. She's gone to her room and she's crying. What about? Oh, something about a duffer set. Do go to her and say you didn't mean to be unkind. There's a good boy. All right. He knocked at Miss Wilkinson's door, but receiving no answer, went in. He found her lying face downwards on her bed, weeping. He touched her on the shoulder. I say, what on earth's the matter? Leave me alone. I never want to speak to you again. What have I done? I'm awfully sorry if I've hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. I say, do get up. Oh, I'm so unhappy. How could you be cruel to me? You know I hate that stupid game. I only play it because I want to play with you. She got up and walked towards the dressing table, but after a quick look in the glass, sank into a chair. She made her handkerchief into a ball and dabbed her eyes with it. I've given you the greatest thing a woman can give a man. Oh, what a fool I was. And you have no gratitude. You must be quite heartless. How could you be so cruel as to torment me by flirting with those two vulgar girls? We've only got just over a week. Can't you even give me that? Philip stood over her rather sulkily. He thought her behavior childish. He was vexed with her for having shown her ill temper before strangers. But you know I don't care twopence about either of those O'Connors. Why on earth should you think I do? Miss Wilkinson put away her handkerchief. Her tears had made marks on her powdered face, and her hair was somewhat disarranged. Her white dress did not suit her very well just then. She looked up at Philip with hungry, passionate eyes. Because you're twenty and so's she, she said hoarsely, and I'm old. Philip reddened and looked away. The anguish of her tone made him feel strangely uneasy. He wished with all his heart that he had never had anything to do with Miss Wilkinson. I don't want to make you unhappy, he said awkwardly. You'd better go down and look after your friends. They'll wonder what has become of you. All right. He was glad to leave her. End of segment five. Chapter 35, Segment 6 The quarrel was quickly followed by a reconciliation, but the few days that remained were sometimes irksome to Philip. He wanted to talk of nothing but the future, and the future invariably reduced Miss Wilkinson to tears. At first her weeping affected him, and feeling himself a beast, he redoubled his protestations of undying passion, but now it irritated him. It would have been all very well if she had been a girl, but it was silly of a grown-up woman to cry so much. She never ceased reminding him that he was under a debt of gratitude to her which he could never repay. He was willing to acknowledge this since she made a point of it, but he did not really know why he should be any more grateful to her than she to him. He was expected to show his sense of obligation in ways which were rather a nuisance. He had been a good deal used to solitude, and it was a necessity to him sometimes but Miss Wilkinson looked upon it as an unkindness as if he was not always at her beck and call. The Miss O'Connors asked them both to tea, and Philip would have liked to go, but Miss Wilkinson said she only had five days more with him and wanted him entirely to herself. It was flattering, but a bore. 
Miss Wilkinson told him stories of the exquisite delicacy of Frenchmen when they stood in the same relation to their fair ladies as he to Miss Wilkinson. She praised their courtesy, their passion for self-sacrifice, their perfect tact. Miss Wilkinson seemed to want a great deal. Philip listened to her enumeration of the qualities which must be possessed by the perfect lover, and he could not help feeling a certain satisfaction that she lived in Berlin. You will write to me, won't you? Write to me every day. I want to know everything you're doing. You must keep nothing from me. I shall be awfully busy, he answered. I'll write as often as I can. She flung her arms around him passionately. He was embarrassed sometimes by the demonstrations of her affection. He would have preferred her to be more passive. It shocked him a little that she should give him so marked a lead. It did not tally altogether with his prepositions about the modesty of the feminine temperament. At length, the day came on which Miss Wilkinson was to go, and she came down to breakfast, pale and subdued, in a serviceable traveling dress of black and white check. She looked a very competent governess. Philip was silent, too, for he did not quite know what to say that would fit the circumstance, and he was terribly afraid that, if he said something flippant, Miss Wilkinson would break down before his uncle and make a scene. They had said their last goodbye to one another in the garden the night before, and Philip was relieved that there was now no opportunity for them to be alone. He remained in the dining room after breakfast in case Miss Wilkinson should insist on kissing him on the stairs. He did not want Marianne, now a woman upon middle age with a sharp tongue, to catch them in a compromising position. Marianne did not like Miss Wilkinson and called her an old cat. Aunt Louisa was not very well and could not come to the station, but the vicar and Philip saw her off. Just as the train was leaving, she leaned out and kissed Mr. Carey. I must kiss you too, Philip, she said. All right, he said, blushing. He stood up on the step and she kissed him quickly. The train started and Miss Wilkinson sank into the corner of her carriage and wept disconsolately. Philip, as he walked back to the vicarage, felt a distinct sensation of relief. End of segment six. Chapter 35, Segment 7 "'Well, did you see her safely off?' asked Aunt Louisa when they got in. "'Yes, she seemed rather weepy. She insisted on kissing me and Philip. "'Oh, well, at her age it's not dangerous.' Mrs. Carey pointed to the sideboard. "'There's a letter for you, Philip. It came by second post.' It was from Hayward, and ran as follows. "'My dear boy,' I answer your letter at once. I ventured to read it to a great friend of mine, a charming woman whose help and sympathy have been very precious to me, a woman withal with a real feeling for art and literature, and we agreed that it was charming. You wrote from your heart, and you do not know the delightful naivete which is in every line. And because you love, you write like a poet. Ah, dear boy, that is the real thing. I felt the glow of your young passion and your prose was musical from the sincerity of your emotion. You must be happy. I wish I could have been present, unseen, in that enchanted garden, while you wandered hand in hand, like Daphnis and Chloe, amid the flowers. 
I can see you, my Daphnis, with the light of young love in your eyes, tender, enraptured, and ardent, while Chloe in your arms, so young and soft and fresh, vowing she would ne'er consent, consented. Roses and violets and honeysuckle, oh, my friend, I envy you. It is so good to think that your first love should have been pure poetry. Treasure the moments, for the immortal gods have given you the greatest gift of all, and it will be a sweet, sad memory till your dying day. You will never again enjoy that careless rapture. First love is best love, and she is beautiful and you are young, and all the world is yours. I felt my pulse go faster when, with your adorable simplicity, you told me that you buried your face in her long hair. I am sure that it is that exquisite chestnut seems just touched with gold. I would have you sit under a leafy tree, side by side, and read together Romeo and Juliet. And then I would have you fall on your knees, and on my behalf, kiss the ground on which her foot has left its imprint. Then tell her it is the homage of a poet to her radiant youth, and to your love for her. Yours always, G. Etheridge Hayward. What damn rot, said Philip, when he finished the letter. Miss Wilkinson, oddly enough, had suggested that they should read Romeo and Juliet together. But Philip had firmly declined. Then, as he put the letter in his pocket, he felt a queer little pang of bitterness because reality seemed so different from the ideal. End of Segment 7